Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Last week, the press reported aggressively on the fact that Kim Kardashian had visited the White House, just as it had the previous visits of Kid Rock and Ted Nugent before her. With homage to Dr. Seuss, oh, how far we have fallen. On April 29, 1962, John Kennedy welcomed a group of Nobel Prize winners to the White House. Besides the prize winners, other guests included William Styron, James Baldwin, Mary Welsh Hemingway, John Glenn, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., Pablo Casals, Linus Pauling, and so many others. Held at the height of the Cold War, the dinner celebrated American achievement and symbolized a time when ideas and facts mattered and were esteemed. Divergent viewpoints could be respectfully discussed, and the great minds of the time could all dine together. As Jack Kennedy said at the time, it was the most extraordinary collection of talent and human knowledge that has ever gathered at the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. This dinner wasn't just an affectation of Camelot, but really represented another time in America. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Joseph Esposito. He's a historian, writer, and educator. He served in three presidential administrations and most recently as Deputy Undersecretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Department of Education. He's taught history at three different colleges, and he's the author of a new book entitled Dinner in Camelot, The Night America's Greatest Scientists, Writers, and Scholars Partied at the Kennedy White House. Joe Esposito, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be with you. It's great to have you here. When did you decide that this event, that this dinner, this moment in time, was worthy of really taking a look at as as something special that was something representative of something? Well, I met uh, John Kennedy in 1960, which was uh, a very important moment for me. I was a 10-year-old boy, and it had an impact on me, and uh, I subsequently went on to to serve in the government, uh, largely as a, a result of the, the the inspiration from from President Kennedy, but I also had followed over the years um, a number of the important events of the of the Kennedy era, as well as the 1960s, which were were an important time for me, and uh, I was very quite interested in this in this story. And actually, the more I uh, began digging. Uh, I became even more interested because it's just a fascinating uh, example of of America when it worked and when consensus was important and when we could honor people with the highest levels at the White House. And uh, I think it's uh, it's extremely uh, timely uh, right now. It's really so hard, and 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 you know, in looking at dinner in Camelot, it's hard to imagine young people reading this book and understanding that moment in a world of, of alternative facts and, and refutation of, of even the best science. It, it's really difficult to even comprehend in this, this context. It is. And uh, in fact, I think we, overall, we need to have young people gain a better appreciation for history. Um, and it seems to, to, to many that the, the, this period, the 1960s or even the 70s for that matter, the 80s is, is um, very far removed from our time. And um, obviously, um, as a historian and, and as somebody who teaches history, I feel that's, that's uh, quite important. So hopefully uh, books like mine uh, might uh, remind people that there was such a time. Tell us a little bit about this dinner, how it came together, what the idea of it originally was. At the outset of the Kennedy administration, 
the there was a, a desire by by President and Mrs. Kennedy and the White House staff to uh, bring uh, again essentially the best and the brightest uh, to the attention of the American people. Mrs. Kennedy was very um, convinced of that the White House should be a, a living museum, and um, as I think many people uh, who have who know that that era are aware that uh, many. Um, Distinguished artists and musicians and, and other important guests were were at the, at the White House. Pablo Casals, for instance, had been uh, gave a gave a, a performance of the first time he had been uh, at the White House since the the uh, administration of Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and there was a there was a succession of these people. But really, at the inauguration, they they established more than 100, 150 spaces uh, to uh, identify uh, writers and authors and, and musicians give them uh, special prominence at, at, at the inauguration. Uh, and, and many, many went to the inauguration and in fact filled up a book uh, uh, of, of, their, uh, of, of their thoughts uh, and presented it to, to, to President Kennedy. So this was a continuation of that. In November uh, of 1961, Richard Goodwin, who just recently died, uh, was a staff aide to, uh, to President Kennedy and he sent a, a memo to Mrs. Kennedy and said, how about we have a dinner for the Nobel laureates uh, because this will give us an opportunity to highlight the scientists. The U.S. had been especially prominent in the field of science. And that's where, that's where it all started. And the planning took place over several months and the dinner took, uh, was, uh, was held on April 29, 1962. How much did the idea for these kind of events and, and the celebration of, of ideas and the best that was America, how much was that driven by the Cold War at the time and by the desire to inf- reinforce American exceptionalism? I think that had a very important role. Uh, we were locked in this icy confrontation with the Soviet Union, and uh, there was essentially a, and it was us against them, and there was, and that, and that created a, a, a desire to, to, to really come together to this, this idea of we need to uh, develop a consensus because there are, there are existential threats. So I think that was important. Um, and I think it was important because uh, these, these were scientists and they had uh, a very important role to play. Uh, a number of the people at the Nobel dinner uh, were, uh, had, had worked on the Manhattan Project, but there were also uh, people who, who worked in a variety of other areas that, that had an impact on on American competition with the, with the Soviet Union, and of course John Glenn was there as well, and he was representative of this of, of, of the space age, and he was a, in fact the hero of the hour. His his uh, orbiting of the Earth had just taken place a few weeks earlier, so the Cold War I think had an important impact on that. But also I, I really want to stress the role of Mrs. Kennedy. Um, she really took into the White House a desire as I said, to make this a living museum. What she did was establish the office of White House curator. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she, uh, it, was the first, it was the first time uh, such a position was, was created in, in the White House. Uh, she launched the White House Historical Association, which is, which is still functioning and, and making a, a valuable contribution. Um, she um, did this notable a tour of the White House on uh, Valentine's Day, 1962, in which she unveiled 
the uh, progress that she had made in refurbishing the White House. And the refurbishing was really a result of, of her creation of yet another uh, group, a fine arts committee of uh, art connoisseurs, of art historians, and others who would comb the country and uh, look for uh, uh, artwork and artifacts that had been in the White House and try to get them to be returned to the White House. So one of the, the rooms that, were, that was used for the dinner that night, the Blue Room, was uh, substantially returned to what it was like in the days of James Monroe. And in fact, some of the artifacts there had been personally purchased by Monroe. One of the other aspects of this dinner is the relationships that grew out of it, that this wasn't just a gathering for the purpose of a photo op, but these people really enjoyed each other's company, and a lot of relationships grew out of this dinner. Yes, they did. And many of them knew one another, but some uh, became acquainted for the first time. Uh, the, the William Styron, the, the novelist who would come to write Sophie's Choice and the, um, uh, the, the Confessions of Matt Turner, uh, he and his wife Rose established a relationship <clears throat> with the Kennedy family that has lasted to this day. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm very honored that Rose, uh, Rose Styron um, wrote the foreword to, uh, to my book. Uh, there was an important relationship formed between Robert Kennedy and James Baldwin. Uh, a year later, when they had met for the first time at the Nobel dinner, and a year later, uh, in the aftermath of the, um, uh, the, the various issues related to Birmingham, Alabama, uh, they got together and had a meeting. And uh, it, was a, it was an important meeting. It was in New York. And uh, uh, Robert Kennedy had asked, Baldwin to assemble a group of prominent African-American leaders, and among those were Harry Belafonte, uh, Lorraine Hansberry, uh, and, uh, and Baldwin, of course, was there. And uh, it was a very contentious meeting. It was a, uh, uh, a, 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 a one in which uh, both sides left uh, the, 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 the evening with um, uh, a lot of um, unhappiness. Uh, but Robert Kennedy reflected on it on the dinner, on the, on the meeting, on the discussion, and uh, this was all to to get a better sense of the concerns of African Americans on segregation, on race relations, and uh, it really had uh, within a week or so had an impact on on his thinking. And in fact, uh, very shortly thereafter, uh, President Kennedy delivered his Civil Rights Address to the Nation, uh, a very important one in which he out, uh, outlined what eventually became the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And Robert Kennedy was the only uh, aide or the only official in the, in the administration who supported uh, President Kennedy uh, doing that. Um, <clears throat> an interesting side note was uh, Linus Pauling, who had, uh, had an ambivalent relationship with, uh, uh, with President Kennedy. He thought he had, uh, President Kennedy had uh, potential but was uh, disappointed that uh, uh, we hadn't been moving um, quickly enough in dealing with uh, um, the disarmament with the Soviet Union. Uh, Pauling, who had received his Nobel Prize for Chemistry, had become increasingly a peace activist. And uh, he actually had been picketing outside the White House uh, that very day. Uh, and... Uh, he was picketing the previous day as well. Uh, he had come to Washington for the Nobel dinner, but 
decided to uh, join in the picketing because there was a group that was uh, protesting uh, the lack of progress on uh, a, a nuclear uh, agreement with the Soviet Union. So when he, he, he and his wife, Ava Helen Pauling, who was also a social activist, a peace um, advocate, uh, they, they, they changed, uh, walked over uh, a couple blocks to the Willard Hotel in Washington and changing their dinner clothes and then went to the White House to dinner. And uh, in, the, in the receiving line, uh, President Kennedy said, uh, well, Dr. Pauling, I, I see you've been around the White House a few times. And uh, before he introduced uh, Dr. Pauling to, uh, to Mrs. Kennedy, he said, well, I hope you will continue to express your opinion. I think that was, uh, that was an amazing uh, a statement. And in fact, there were other people at the, at the dinner that night who had disagreed with President Kennedy on various issues. Uh, there was actually a third person who was picketing, and can't make this stuff up, but the, it, his name was Clarence Pickett, and uh, he was um, the um, executive secretary of the American Friends Service Committee which had received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1947. So there are people who disagree with Kennedy. And I emphasize this because uh, the, this was an opportunity here at the Nobel dinner to really highlight people for their achievements to the United States. And uh, uh, there was no partisanship. How was the dinner reported at the time? It was uh, reported uh, largely uh, uh, in the context of, of what would appear to be controversies, and that was uh, Pauling picketing and uh, the appearance of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer had been, of course, the father of the atomic bomb, but he had lost his security clearance uh, in the McCarthy era in 1954. And this uh, re this appearance at the White House, uh, the invitation, really represented a, uh, the first part of President Kennedy's effort to give him some sort of uh, a public redemption. So the newspaper articles uh, really focused on Oppenheimer and on uh, on uh, Pauling, although uh, there was uh, there was certainly the discussion of the of the, the, the all the eggheads who were who were there as well. Uh, Linus Pauling, uh, interestingly, uh, really enjoyed himself that night, and uh, he uh, he led some impromptu dancing. There was there was they were moving from one room to another. He and his wife started dancing in the. Uh, to the strolling strings that were playing throughout the evening, and a few other couples joined in, and uh, uh, some of some of that was covered. Uh, some photos of, of that, which was uh, was somewhat interesting. You talked about Jackie Kennedy and really her imprimatur on this. Talk a little bit about Jack Kennedy and how he saw this event. I think he saw it uh, as uh, in, in in two ways. One, uh, well, perhaps what well, three ways really. One was. He was very supportive of, of, of his wife, and she knew that he knew that she uh, wanted to um, place an emphasis on the, the arts and literature, and, and by by extension on the sciences as well. And he was very supportive of the idea of of her work in, in the White House. He was really the driving force here. Um, I think secondly, uh, he was a a master at understanding the importance of symbolism, and he understood what this meant uh, to bring these people together at the highest uh, at the highest levels, and to show the American people that we really respected their work. A number of these these Nobel laureates were uh, were immigrants, people who were, had fleed uh, uh, oppressive regimes, and uh, 
I, I think third um, that uh, he also uh, was very interested in highlighting our, our success in the sciences. Uh, a month before the dinner, he had spoken at the University of California at Berkeley, and uh, he pointed out accurately that there had been more Nobel Prize winners um, at Berkeley than had been uh, ever uh, awarded to the people in the Soviet Union, um, and just at that one institution. And some of those people were at the, at the most of those people were at the uh, uh, the dinner in in, in uh, the following month. Uh, so uh, this was a time when we were very interested in uh, in, in ensuring that we were competitive with the Soviet Union. In, in the sciences. So I think that was another important factor. Could you imagine something like this dinner, this event happening nowadays? It'd be very, very difficult <laughs> to imagine that, yes. Uh, and I think there are, there are obviously a number of reasons why that might be. And this this question comes up uh, when, I, when I've been speaking uh, about the dinner. And I think uh, one, one explanation, and again, there are others, but one explanation is as a society, I think we've drifted toward really um, honoring celebrity and not achievement. Uh, these people who were at the Nobel dinner, um, they were well-known within their own community. Uh, but they made distinguished uh, contributions uh, in, in, in every area. These weren't idle eggheads in it. By any means, they were responsible for streptomyosin. One was responsible for... Um, you know, work on anemia and quantum mechanics. And again, as I said, with the Manhattan Project, there were two Nobel Peace Prize winners, one who had worked on, on Palestine, one who had worked on the Suez Crisis. Glenn Seaborg, who was the head of the Atomic Energy Commission, um, who was a Nobel laureate, um, was a, responsible for identifying 10 chemical elements. And so the list goes on and on and on. And I think, unfortunately, we've come to um, put so much emphasis on, on just plain celebrity um, that we, uh, we we miss the opportunity to, to celebrate the people who made significant contributions to to the country and to the world. I think that's half of it. The other half, though, is the attitude towards knowledge today, towards what would be considered by by many this gathering of elites and the negativity that would be reported inherent in that. Sure, I, I would agree with that. And, and, and I think that at the core, it's one of the things that we've lost so much of, this respect for expertise, which was so much a part of, of this gathering. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, expertise inside the government and outside the government. I, I was struck by the first uh, State of the Union address that President Kennedy gave in only 10, ten days after his inauguration, in which he, he said, uh, in, in an effect, uh, public service is, is a noble profession, and we want to attract the best people to the government because we need these people to to um, to, to deal with the, the, the pressing issues of the time. And I, I, I think we've lost something there, too. Because of the failures of the Kennedy administration, Vietnam in particular, and the way the best and the brightest were looked on retrospectively with respect to the Kennedy administration— did that have an impact on how an event like this is looked at historically, do you think? I don't think so. Um, um, I think there's still, there, there certainly were many achievements in the Kennedy uh, administration. And uh, 
I think this dinner and and what it represents stands on stands by itself. Joseph Esposito, the book is Dinner in Camelot, the night America's greatest scientists, writers, and scholars partied at the Kennedy White House. Joseph, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thank you.